Thank you, Pastor Geary. Uh, I'm not sure who Pastor Chris is. I'm, I'm sure he's a great guy and can't wait to meet him, but uh, that'll have to wait. Good to be back. It's always good to be at CCC, and it is coming home. And we just have relationship with so many of you guys, and it's always a, a privilege and honor to share God's Word in this particular context. So just an update. Uh, since I spoke here last, things continue to happen. Lacey retired, stepped away from full-time faculty at Evangel. I had already done so a couple of years ago, and we have done this to pursue this last lap around the track, to give people God's Word in a visual way and to connect them as, as closely as possible to the physical realities of their relationship with God and, and their faith and the Word. So, uh, in fact, I just got off the plane from uh, a month in Israel. Uh, it was awesome. It always is. Uh, in fact, we've, uh, that was my third trip this year. We have one more. That's coming up in November. It's the, uh, we leave the day after Thanksgiving. That's November the 25th. And we're back by December the 5th. And so, you know, plenty of time to put out the decorations and do last-minute shopping and stuff like that. Honestly, we've never had anyone from the CCC community to be a part of one of these study trips where we're connecting physical reality with God's Word and, and your faith. And it would be pretty awesome to be able to inject that level of health and DNA into this, into this body. Uh, so I, in the first service, I said, just, you know, go to wavenunley.com. You know, pretty obvious, right? But uh, for those of you who are still hard copy kind of folks, anal analog man living in a digital world, Joe Walsh, right? Uh, my wife is in the back. She's got hard copies. So itinerary, uh, information about uh, the trip, and we would, we'd love to have you and have that kind of DNA transplanted from the world of the Bible directly into CCC. Uh, Lacey's in the very back. So thank you. Um, today, I want to talk with you about a passage of Scripture that we actually picked when COVID started. You remember COVID, right? Okay. Uh, two years of absolute weirdness. Um, and now we have monkeypox to deal with. Hosanna, isn't it good? Um, and we have runaway inflation and all other kinds of interesting things. And so just wanted to, it, with, with those sorts of challenges, difficulties, struggles uh, in mind, even as far back as the beginning of COVID, we wanted to um, on our YouTube channel, uh, website, um, Facebook page, wanted to start putting videos out that would encourage people, passages from Scripture that we chose specifically because of the, the, the power that they had to bring encouragement in difficult times. And it doesn't make any difference what time period you're living in. There's somebody somewhere that's going to be going through a time of difficulty that needs that kind of encouragement. So Psalm 23 we did, other passages, New Testament things. This, was, this thing that we're going to do this morning is, is one of those that I wanted to bring to the body uh, at CCC and uh, give you guys a, a chance to interact with the physical and real world of the Bible. So you could go to the next slide. Um, it's, uh, a, it's a blessing 
that if is tucked away in a strange place in the Bible, you'd almost think, yeah, that's, that's Sermon on the Mount stuff. You know, that's life and ministry of Jesus kind of. That's, that's, that's stuff you ripped out of the letters of Paul or something like that, but you find it, it stuck away in Numbers chapter 6. So you go, okay, well, that's a, you know, the priestly blessing, A, what's that? B, you know, what's, what's it doing in a place like Numbers chapter 6? So here's my goal, that we look at this thing from several different directions to get perspective, to get context, because that's what makes, that's what makes communication mean something, uh, whether it's an email or whether it's a, uh, a voicemail on your phone or something that you're always looking for, who is this talking? What an issue are they addressing? What does that word mean? What do I know about them that helps me unpack this message a little bit better? So context is king when it comes to communicating. Let's just look at some of those contexts. In the book of Numbers, chapter 6, in the middle of the law of Moses, quote-unquote, in the middle of the wilderness wanderings of the people of Israel for 40 years, God speaks to Moses. And I want you to notice this. He's the one who takes the initiative. No one wrenches this blessing out of him, you know, like held a catapult to his head or something like that and forced him, you know, arm behind back. Okay, bless us. I'm not going to let you go until you bless us. God takes the initiative in this. This has got to tell us something about his heart, his desire for us, his children, his covenant sons and daughters. The Lord, by the way, the Lord, L-O-R-D, all capital letters, doesn't matter what translation you read, they've standardized at least this, and that is the Hebrew behind that is the word Yahweh. It's God's covenant name. It's the name he uses to, to cut or create covenant with individuals throughout the scripture, I would argue today as well. So Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and to his sons, the priests, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. Say to them, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his countenance on you and give you shalom or peace. Thus they will invoke my name on the sons of Israel and I then will bless them. Let's break it down into its various aspects of context. Next, uh, everybody knows here already that I love uh, maps. This is a layer-tinted satellite map, declassified military uh, satellite data from the French and the Americans, bought legally, um, and we've been working on this project for about 28 years now. Uh, this uh, map that I've got in front of you is just one piece of a whole bunch of stuff that we have been working on. But what I wanted to do was get us on location. I, I, I want you to leave the United States in your mind's eye for just a moment, and I want you to enter into the biblical world. Egypt is down here and has enslaved Israel for 400 years. Can you imagine that? Like twice as long as America has been a free country enslaved the people of Israel. They've been the heart of the Egyptian economy and now they're gone. Egypt wants them back. So these guys have come up through Mount Sinai right here, have come up through the Sinai into the northern Sinai deserts that then join the land of Canaan, which would become renamed the land of Israel. 
They're in this yellow circle that I have drawn, the northern Sinai deserts, the wilderness of Zin that you read about in the book of Numbers a lot. So they've got Egypt on their heels. They've got Edom pushing in on them from the east. All around them are these desert marauders that the Bible calls variously Midianites and Amalekites and stuff like that, picking at the edges, constantly trying to inflict injury, damage on the people of Israel. Well, the Canaanites are up here and they're not interested in just saying, oh yeah, you can come, you know, take as much land as you want, you know, live wherever you want, take whatever you've got, you want of, of ours. They've, they've got stuff to defend. And so the Canaanites are their enemies. Uh, Moabites here, Ammonites here, these people find themselves surrounded by enemies, regional and international enemies. Think of it another way. Think of it from the perspective of weather. In Jerusalem, which I have circled in red here, you get 30 to 32 inches of rain a year, just about what we get in Springfield on good years. Not 2012 and not maybe this year, I don't know, but... uh, Anyway, good rainfall up in the mountains, a big mountain chain. But if you go 44 miles to the south, you get to Beersheba or Beersheba. It's where Abraham lived most of his time in the land of Canaan. But you're dropping off from 30, 32 inches of rain down to 12, which is that is the margin, basically. Meteorologists, people that do farming, 12 inches, anything less than that, and you're not going to get a crop. Therefore, you won't eat the next year. So they're, really, they're right on the margin of, of arable land and cultivatable um, area. But if you go just one mile down to the edge of this uh, area circled in yellow, you go one mile south of Beersheba, the rainfall drops off from 12 inches down to one. One inch of rain per year. Nothing will grow. It will not sustain life. That's the reason why there had to be water from the rock, manna from heaven, quail from heaven. God is literally sustaining them. But whether you're talking about physical needs of food and and, and stuff, or you're talking about being surrounded by enemies, these people find themselves in real dire straits, difficult times. Can you relate? Is there anything in your life whether it's economic or whether it's educational or whether it's problem with a friend or uh, it's COVID and the fallout of that or now monkeypox and all the inflation and everything else, stock market all over the place and you're going, God, what in the world is going on in the world? What in the world is happening here? Where are you? Uh, How are you and what way are you involved in my life to deal with the valley? To deal with, you know, even in the lowest valley that we just sang about, you know. Or he's with us even in the valley of the shadow of death. It's not that God just kind of Scotty beamed me up these guys out of the wilderness and all the enemies are gone and all the physical needs are met automatically. Instead, it's in this context that number six and the priestly blessing is given. God encouraging his people in difficult times. He's not a beam me up Scotty kind of God. He is a God who is with us even through the valley of the shadow of death, right? He is a very present help in time of trouble, Psalm 46. Yes, 
He's going to be with us even when we're going into a strange, a foreign land filled with enemies. I will be with you to bless you everywhere you go, he tells Joshua right before coming into the land of Canaan. That's the kind of God that we're dealing with. That's the kind of God who gives us number six in this situation. Next. So let's talk about this number six passage from the perspective of recent archaeology. I want to do a little bit of a study of Jerusalem. I don't want to drive you crazy with it, but there was an incredible discovery that took place from the late 1970s into the early 1980s. It's a time when Lacey and I had sold everything we had and moved to Israel to do a master's degree in Hebrew. Um, And it was kind of our kickstart into this world that we're still working in, walking in. And uh, no better place than to go to the origin. So guess where you are? You're looking at this ridge, that's the Mount of Olives. Not a single peak, but a ridge that then lies east of Jerusalem. Do you see the Temple Mount there? And in between is the Kidron Valley, where Jesus crossed to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, or where David crossed to flee from Absalom uh, back in the days of Absalom's revolt. Going around this edge of the city is the Hinnom Valley, what Jesus called Gehenna or Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom. And it formed the southern and the western um, border of Israel in, of, of Jerusalem in Jesus' day. So you've got this little narrow finger of land right there that is the city of David. That's David's Jerusalem, 12 acres. And this little green spot right there, that's the pool of Siloam. But then Hezekiah expanded the city in the 8th century BC and built a wall around this part of it. You still see part of it walled. That's the Ottoman wall of the 16th century AD. Uh, But this is Jesus' Jerusalem, 180 acres. This is David's Jerusalem, 12 acres. Well, I just spent about a month staying at Jerusalem University College, right on the eastern edge of the Hinnom Valley. Looking across this Hinnom Valley, over here is one little white building that stands out by itself. That is St. Andrew's Scottish Church. I want you to keep your um, mind or your eye on that as we look at a couple of other pictures. Next. Here's another picture. Again, you can probably recognize Mount of Olives, Kidron Valley, Temple Mount, old city wall of Jerusalem, then the newer city, but you get the Hinnom Valley going up and around, southern edge of Jerusalem, western edge of Jerusalem. uh, uh, Jerusalem University College right there on the, the, the cliff, the edge of the Hinnom Valley, and there's your little white building right there, St. Andrew's Scottish Church. Everybody got this in context now? Because context is everything. So I would wake up, I could look out of my window, and I could see the, the, white, uh, the, the blue flag with the white cross, the Scottish flag flying over St. Andrew's Scottish Church. It's been there for a long, long time, but that's where we want to go, right behind that little white building right there. Next, this is a video, and um, you can see some of the things, just nice to put things in motion sometimes. There's the city of David. And here's the Pool of Siloam right here. Friend of mine, Ailey Shukron, found it in 2007. Excavated. We visit there all the time. Here's the Kidron Valley. We're flying over the Mount of, yes, Olives. 
in the far distance, you can see the, the territory of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, and here's the old city wall right here. Uh, coming up and joining the Kidron Valley is the Hinnom Valley that goes around like that. You recognize these things? We saw these. All right, unfortunately, just off, X marks the spot, just off this center, uh, Jerusalem University College, right across the valley and just off of the picture is the St. Andrew's Cottage Church. Don't worry, we're going to go back to that. Um, the Temple Mount right there, the Dome of the Rock in the middle, uh, the City of David, you can still see that right there, that Jesus whited sepulchers and you decorate the tombs of the prophets, great big cemetery, goes way back before the time of Jesus that he was referencing when he taught on those steps right there. Uh, just amazing clarity that we've got connecting text with, with physical reality in the land. Next so let's go to St. Andrew's Scottish. I told you we were coming back. St. Andrew's Scottish Church right here. And, and right behind it, if you've got really, really good eyesight, is an excavation pit. A lengthy excavation took place beginning in the, around 1979. And it was conducted by, next, it was conducted by my archaeology professor when we lived there, Dr. Gabriel Barcai. He's in his late 70s now in failing health, but love the guy to death. And he's sitting in the middle of, interestingly, that wasn't intended as a play on words, but he's sitting in a tomb complex, one that he discovered in the late 70s and began an excavation. And the results of that kind of unfolded over about three and a half years. I had invited him to come and speak to a group, which I often do, um, on site in context, and to talk to them about what was discovered in this excavation and why it's important to them. That's what we're going to do the rest of my time with you today. So he gave his lecture there, sitting on the very spot where this took place. Um, it is a uh, 7th century BC. That means you go back 2,700 years in history. You go back before the Crusades and King Arthur and Robin Hood, the Disney version with the fox. And you keep going another thousand years back to the time of Jesus. And then you keep on going another 200 years to 200 BC where the Dead Sea Scrolls were um, written, Dead Sea Scrolls. And then after the Dead Sea Scrolls, you go back another 400 years in time. Now you're back in the days of people like Jeremiah and Nebuchadnezzar and the destruction of Solomon's temple and those kinds of things that we read about. This is the, what we want to address today. Next slide. One of the things that was found in this excavation was a huge tomb complex that had a, a foyer that then split off into one, two, three, and then another one underneath us, four different chambers where different families within the same clan were burying their dead. You can even see the headrests for bodies to be laid out as they decomposed. And then after decomposition, the, the, the family would come back in a, a second ceremony and would gather the bones together and would collect them into pits called ossuaries. That's the reason that the Bible talks about, and he died and he was buried and he was gathered to his fathers. You see that multiple stage thing that's going on there? It's a, called a two-stage burial in this tomb complex from the 7th century BC, from the Old Testament time reflects that reality. He would died, 
He was buried and he was gathered to his fathers, meaning put together in the same pit along with ancestors that went before you into the afterlife. So uh, much of the stuff that was originally buried, people buried with all kinds of artifacts like jewelry because people would need to comb their hair and have jewelry and stuff in the next life. But among those things that were found were two really important artifacts. Two of all the stuff that was found, of all the stuff that the grave robbers in centuries before had taken out, there was still material culture found there. Next slide. One of the things, two of the things were two little tiny silver scrolls that were beaten down to real, you know, like paper thin, and then were written on, probably with some kind of like an iron stylus that's talked about in Jeremiah and in the book of Job in the Bible, writing with an iron stylus so that you can etch into metal or stone. And these became really, really important. The way that they were discovered was quite strange. Um, a little boy that uh, had, was a f- son or w- a, a grandson or whatever of one of the people who had volunteered to excavate was a constant nag to Dr. Um, Garpa- Gar- um, uh, Barkai. And, and one day he was pulling on his sweater and, and Dr. Barkai turns around and he says, what do you want? He says, I'm bored. I don't know about you, but in my house, that was guaranteed work comes next, right? Chores, right? So Dr. Barkai gave him a little tiny um, hand brush and said, that tomb that we've completed, you know, all the dirt, all the artifacts that we could find, it's all out. I want you to go in and I want you to sweep every speck of dust out of that particular tomb. So the little boy went and about 10 minutes later, he got bored. So he turned the the hand brush upside down and started beating on what he thought was the floor with the handle of the brush. The floor cracked. He began to pull pieces of stone away and there was stuff underneath, stuff hidden from the grave robbers because at some point evidently in the Uh, In the ancient past, there was an earthquake and part of the ceiling that covered those tombs, it was a cave at one point, had fallen down and covered all of this material culture, stuff that the grave robbers didn't know they were there. They were walking, what they thought was the floor was actually a collapsed ceiling. All the stuff underneath among that was, were these two scrolls. And so after three and a half years, they finally figured out how to unroll it and come to find out, next slide, they had discovered the oldest piece of Bible ever found anywhere. We talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and yes, that definitely moved the ball from like the earliest stuff we had before the scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, 1000 AD, the time of the Crusades, King Arthur, etc., With the Dead Sea Scrolls, now we have stuff from the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, that goes back to the second century. Some fragments even the third century BC. The ball had been moved by 1300 years. What we found amazingly was that the Bible, even though copied by hand, uh, had been, and, and on perishable materials, had been preserved beautifully the same Bible that we had. But now, now we're moving back from the second century BC all the way back to the seventh century BC. Four, five hundred more years back into history, all the way to the very point these texts are coming from the days of Jeremiah. 
from the days of, 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 Hezekiah, of, the days of Hezekiah, the days of, of Nebuchadnezzar, who destroyed Jerusalem and the temple as the Babylonian conquering king in 587 BC. All of this stuff is predating that. This is the oldest biblical stuff that the human family possesses. It's on permanent display at the Israel Museum. We take our, our groups to the Israel Museum. One of the things that you got to get your eyeballs on because you can get this close to these scrolls is the oldest biblical stuff that we have in our possession. You imagine 2,700 years ago, somebody wrote this thing down and then rolled it up and turned it into a pendant on a necklace or a bracelet. Can you imagine that? All right. Well, let's take a study. It just so happens that the passage of study for today is the oldest piece of Bible stuff that anybody has ever found anywhere. Is that amazing? Can you imagine um, what the kind of hoops God had to jump through to preserve this text? And then, out of all the places in Israel, Dr. Barkai is excavating where these texts were buried and accidentally under a fake ceiling. God stands watching over his word. He tells Jeremiah in chapter 1, waiting to perform it. God's word is faithful. These words that you see right here, it's not just word for word, but it's basically letter for letter what we still have in our traditional Hebrew Bibles today that your English translations are based on. God is really concerned about guarding his word about, and also about performing his word. And this word, because it is the same, we can trust it. It hasn't changed. People aren't moving the goalposts there. We do in our culture. We're doing it all the time. Politicians, business leaders, military leaders, religious leaders, constantly moving the, the goalposts. But God and his word are constants in our lives that we can trust, we can rely on, can, as it were, take it to the bank. God has signed his signature to this, and he's not backing up an inch. 2,700 years ago, this text was written and attached to somebody's body because they believed it. They were relying on God's goodness in the wilderness or facing the Babylonian invasion. God's word stays true. His blessing is still for us. Next. So let's just pick at some more from a language standpoint. Let's look more at context. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. When? When Israel was in its greatest need of a reminder of God's faithfulness and of his good intentions toward them. And it's not just any old God. It is the God of the covenant, the God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, somebody they knew, somebody they had you know, history with somebody that had proven his trustworthiness to them. And he spoke to Moses. He took the initiative. I want to remind my people that this is who I am and this is what my plan is for them, even in the midst of desert difficulty, even in the midst of being surrounded by hostile people groups. Next. And I, I broke this down and, and formatted it so that you could see the beauty of and the connectedness of what we call Hebrew poetic parallelism. It's a way of saying the same thing multiple ways. So speak, bless, and say. That's no different than what we get in the teachings of Jesus. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, it says, And when Jesus looked upon the multitudes, he called his disciples to himself. And when he had sat down, he opened up his mouth and taught them, saying. Three different ways of saying the same thing. Speak, bless, and say. All I did was set up the next slide, next, um, which is another formatted slide to show the parallelism. Do you see the and? And it's a little bit out of place. This you should be over here. This you should be over here. But other than that, may. And then Yahweh, he. And then bless, keep, cause face to shine, be gracious, lift up countenance, and give peace. This is all kind of expanding on the same idea of a God who has very, very good intentions toward his covenant sons and daughters. And then one of the coolest things is, and again, you got to take that you and put that over here and then copy and paste this back over there. It's you, 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 and you. Now, in English, we can't tell whether that's the subject or it's the, uh, or it's the object of the verb because it's all you in modern English. We can't tell the difference whether it's masculine or feminine. We can't tell the difference whether it's even singular or plural. 400 years ago, the original King James Bible, when they had thou and ye in the English Bible, we could tell the difference between singular and plural. But now it's all homogenized. It's all six of one, half a dozen of the other, Y-O-U, done, dropping the mic and walking away, right? You. But in Hebrew, the Hebrew has preserved the masculine and the feminine, the singular and the plural, the subject and the object. And this, in all of these yous, they're all singular. God's not dealing with us like some communist dictator. You know, like you are the collective, right? Yeah. Uh, as long as you're a part of the group, you know, or as long as you, you know, say the right words and dress the right way, cut your hair the right way and all that other stuff, then, you know, my covenant blessing might just manage to some kind of way squeak through all the other faceless people in the crowd and get to you. No, this is all singular. He has laser beamed his blessing to you individually, to you as an individual. He knows exactly what you are dealing with. He knows exactly where you are in your personal life's trajectory. His blessing is guided and laser beam directed right at you as an individual. Singular. That's been his plan all along. One-on-one, mano-a-mano, he is singling you, covenant son, you, covenant daughter, out for his covenant blessing, out for his covenant best. And again, keep being reminded that this was not that something that we earned or that we had to, we had to twist the arm of God to get. He initiated this. Then Yahweh said to Moses, tell Aaron to, and his sons to bless my people like this, to put this blessing on my people. So keep that in mind as we continue to process through this. May Yahweh bless you. I know we use this word all, all the time. You pay for your soda at the quick stop and you say, hey, God bless you, have a good day, you know, and, and um, oh, and may God have mercy on your soul, you know, or, you know, God bless you, be warmed and fed, go in peace, get out of my face, you know, or whatever. Um, but God's, God's, 
divine revelation is different than that. It's very textured. It's very contextualized. And the word bless is basically a covenant term. It shows up most often in the Bible in covenant context. Can I give you one example? One example, Deuteronomy chapter 28. 27 and 28 are the blessings and curses of the law. And the blessings and the curses of the law, that is, if you disobey, then this is the negative downside of not submitting to God's ways, not walking in his ways, um, rebelling, committing mutiny, and running in the other direction. And you're the Lord, you're the master, you're the captain of your own ship, master your own fate, and you're just doing your own thing. Well, okay, good luck with that, right? Is, is God's thing. Uh, because you're walking out from under what he intends and his covenant, and you're, you, you're off doing your own thing. That's Deuteronomy 27, and he requires with every curse that the Israelites respond, amen, amen. We're signing off on that. When you get to the blessing, he doesn't require that you say amen at the end of each blessing, because everybody wants that. Everybody's, you know, you don't have to make people, you know, force people to sign on the dotted line. Okay, yeah, I, I, I sign off on that. Everybody wants the blessing. The question is, what is the blessing? The blessing is when you lie down and when you rise up. Blessed are you. Baruch atah. It's the, the formula that's used. You're blessed. Blessed as a covenant son. Blessed as a covenant daughter. When, when you lie down and when you rise up. When you go out and when you come in. When you are in the marketplace and when you sit in your house. When you are sitting at home when you're walking in the way. Blessed will you be in your kneading trough and blessed will be your wine vat. It's what is God's trying to say in this covenant situation is in every area of life, in every moment of your day, all the time, 365, uh, 24-7, God's blessing is surrounding you in every area. He does not compartmentalize. Oh, well, that's the, quote, secular part of your life. Oh, well, that's the religious part of your life. No, we do that. God says in every area, in every way, in every moment, every time, everything, God is wanting to pour out, to manifest, to surround you with his covenant blessing. It is the way through the time of difficulty. It is that when our strength is gone, his weakness, Paul says, is made perfect. It's that the covenant blessing that sees us through difficult times and on into better times. And those better times are also the byproduct of a blessing of God. So bless. Keep, it's, well, yeah, you know, I'm keeping my neighbor's dog because they're out of town on vacation. Yes, I have this uh, good luck charm that I keep in my pocket, you know, it, but it's not that. It's so much more than that. The Hebrew word shamar, it means to guard, to keep, to watch over, to dote over, to, to, to protect by standing guard around my people. It's a prayer that's prayed by Jewish, observant Jewish parents over their children when they put them to bed at night. It comes from Psalm 121. 
it, it, the Hebrew is hine, lo yanum, velo yishan, shomer, shamar, did you hear that word? Shomer Yisrael, behold, he who watches over, keeps, protects, stands guard over Israel, never slumbers or sleeps. He's always on the job. He never takes a break. He's never on vacation. He never gets tired. He is always surrounding us with his covenant protection. There's nothing that can come at us, nothing that can get us that doesn't first go through his throne room. And if it goes through his throne room and he checks off on it, then there's a protection, there is a, there's an empowerment, there is a strength that comes to deal with whatever is allowed in to then um, to, to mature us, to, to, to focus us, to strengthen us. Just like that pushback on the weight bar or on the running track. God will allow, but he's always going to empower. Nothing comes to his covenant son or daughter that won't pass through his throne room and that there's not a divine enablement to deal with. No challenge, no temptation, no struggle, no time of difficulty, but that God doesn't have an empowerment for. He watches over us, surrounds us with his covenant protection, causes face to shine. But basically, anytime that you see some kind of divine light or whatever, like Moses, and he had to put a veil over his face, like Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, when his face and his garments were shining like white, or like Paul on the road to Damascus, when he encounters the resurrected Jesus. And it says in Acts 9 that there was this great light that shone at noonday that was even greater than the sun. You're talking about the presence of God. You're talking about the Shekinah, that special dwelling presence, those moments. I know that so many of you have experienced them and multiple times you're just all of a sudden aware of God's enveloping presence when you're washing dishes or riding down the road or you just wake up and you realize, wow, I just woke up in the presence of the God of all the earth. You have these moments. He's saying, I'm promising that this kind of affirming, encouraging, strengthening, enabling presence of God, you're going to have these multiple, multiple experiences with throughout your walk with him. He's promising that. He's placing that as a blessing. May you experience these kinds of moments where God invades time and space. And it's more than just Behold, the heavens are declaring the glory of God, or his, uh, he, he uh, fills the whole earth, that kind of thing. His glory fills the whole earth. This is these special moments where God comes to you and brings a moment of encouragement and strength that you go, oh my goodness, where did that come from? I didn't give, or I didn't serve, or I didn't earn, or I, 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 didn't, I didn't deserve that. Yeah, that's the whole point. This thing about God's mercy, his favor, his grace, and all that stuff is not about our performance. It's about his promise. And this priestly blessing is full of that kind of presence and everything that comes with it in our life. Remember, the, the word you was singular in your personal life. Man, how incredible that is that a God would... Uh, voluntarily take the initiative and come into our lives and that kind of invade time and space in our personal lives that kind of way amazing be gracious the word chain uh, is to pour out his favor 
upon us. You know that you are a favored people? You know when you woke up this morning that you stood in God's presence forgiven? Forgiven. Doesn't matter. It makes no difference what it was that you did. If you're under the blood of Jesus, you woke up this morning in right standing in God's eyes. You woke up in, in the full presence of God, aware of it or not, know it or not. He is there. He's inside. He's taken up his dwelling inside. Why is that? Because we have truly been forgiven. Our sins have been forgiven. The case has been dismissed. We are right in his sight. Who else can say that with that kind of assurance, with that kind of surety? I am right in God's eyes. My eternity, we sang it, our eternity is assured. We've been forgiven, and so we are promised this incredible positive eternity in his presence with the marriage supper of the Lamb and the whole business awaiting us. What a neat thing to know. Does that bring peace into your life? To know I am right with God. I stand justified in his sight because of the given to us righteousness of Jesus. Wow, what a promise. May he lift up his countenance. And this is basically the same thing as cause his face to shine. You get it in the book of Esther when she goes, okay, I'm going into the king. I don't know what's going to happen. I could live or I could die. I have not been summoned. So I'm going in and let's just hope that he receives me with graciousness. He lifted up his countenance, the king did, on her. He knew, she knew that she had been received. That's the way that God does with us. He lifts up his countenance. He says, I am pleased with you. You're walking in my ways. I'm pleased with you as my covenant son, as my covenant daughter. And we have this immediate entree without even being summoned. We have this every day, every moment entree into the presence of God. We can come boldly before his throne, Hebrews says, to find mercy and grace in time of trouble. We need no invitation card. How cool is that? What kind of, what other people have a God that good anytime, day or night, irrespective of the need that you're going to present? You have immediate entree into my presence with full acceptance, full acceptance. Lift up his countenance. I receive you into my presence. And then, and give peace. Oh my goodness, guys. It's so much more than the absence of war. Or the absence of armed conflict. This word shalom, yes, it's almost glibly used in modern Hebrew as sort of the aloha of the Hebrew language. It can mean both hello and goodbye. But in the Bible, it means so much more than that. It means well-being in every area of your life. The blessing of God invading every area of your life. Can you imagine this? That the God of this shalom the God who is wanting to give, to literally, the word give is like to place upon, to overlay, to completely coat and surround with his shalom. It means that he wants this invading your relationship with your spouse, with your children, with your neighbors, with your coworkers, uh, with anything in any area of your life. He wants you blessed in your domestic life, your financial life. He wants you blessed in the, your sense of, I can lay me down to sleep and know 
know that I am safe and secure. Nobody's going to come through my door and want to take the life of me or my family. God is that kind of God. He wants you as, your, as his covenant son or daughter to know that you dwell under the blessing of his shalom. He wants it to be well with your soul, with every area of your life. This is the kind of good, benevolent, intentional taking the initiative, loving, covenant-keeping, promise-keeping kind of God that we serve. And he wanted his people to know that in that difficult situation that they were in, surrounded by enemies and having trouble with sustenance in the wilderness. And he wants his people to know about it today too. Because he's no different. And his word is no different And human need is no different. We still need those same things those folks were struggling with in the wilderness 3,400 years ago. And you know what the cool thing is about this covenant blessing? It's still there. And Gabi Barkai discovered it in the early 1970s, uh, late at 1970s, unrolled in the early 80s. And now it's coming back. It's, It's becoming more real because you've seen greater context to and, and, and texture and depth and, and perspective because we've looked at it from these various different ways. I wonder if we could look at it just a couple more ways. Next, um, I would like for you to know that not only is God wanting to overlay you, just like the gold that was used to coat the Ark of the Covenant. He wants to place all this stuff upon you. I would also like for you to hear it not because my Hebrew pronunciation is that great. Any rabbi or cantor that you could find down the street could probably outpronounce me. But I want you to hear the words that were discovered on those ancient scrolls in the original language. And I want you to hear it because that was the language it was originally given in and 3,400 years ago. And that was the language that these people inscribed on those silver scrolls 2,700 years ago. And this would be the language that Jesus would hear every time as a kid that he went to synagogue and they called up the people with some connection to the priesthood or to the tribe of Levi. Anybody's name was Cohen or Levi or something like that. They call them forward every Shabbat every Sunday, every Saturday, and they would lift up their hands and they would recite this prayer over God's people. I'd just like you to have, to stand in the same line with with the Davids and the Hezekiahs and the Isaiahs and the Jesuses and everybody that's heard this prayer repeated. I think that you deserve that as a covenant son, as a covenant daughter. So let's do it. Next slide. Yivarecha Aronai v'yishmerecha. Ya'er Aronai Panav Elecha Vichuneka. Yisaronai Panav Elecha Vyasem Lecha Shalom. And I know you know that last word. And they conclude it with uh, an Amen. That's where we get our word Amen. A so be it to me. I sign off on that. I receive that. I accept that. I'm taking that on. Yes, I want that part to be a part of my life. Um, so now you stand in that great cloud of witnesses who have heard these words, not changed even by one letter, as we know now from the Silver Scrolls from the Hinnom Valley and Dr. Barkai's work. Um, but I'd like for you to hear it one other way. There is an incredible messianic movement going on in Israel today, such that we prayed for 
and we witnessed when we were there, but we never got to see it in the 1980s when we lived there. 200,000 followers of Jesus, native-born, Israeli, Hebrew-speaking folks. Now, one guy I'd like for you to meet, um, his name is Josh Aaron. He lives in Israel. Uh, this video that you're going to see was shot all of it around the city of Jerusalem where we used to live uh, and where I just came from. And you're going to see it in multiple layer, layers. You're going to hear it sung now, not just spoken, but sung. And at the bottom of the screen, you're going to see both the Hebrew, that Hebrew that you just saw on the screen. You're going to see the Hebrew and you're going to see the English underneath it. And to hear Jewish people, now full followers, totally committed, experiencing persecution, but standing against it in the power of God's spirit that enables us to overcome that kind of difficulty and sung to God's glory. I just want to encourage you to enter in with that and um, to, um, to, to integrate it. To, to receive it inside of yourself, that covenant blessing that God intended for you, singled you out, wrote this down 3,400 years ago. Let's cue it up, guys, and feel free to engage, to worship, and uh, connect with this on a, even a, a musical level. <laughs> 